This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Christopher Williams, who was made sharply aware of the importance of the environment with the death of his father. His father had worked for an industrial company that was in one of the top 10 polluted sites in the United States in the 1970s. He died of cancer. Christopher Williams works now as the coordinator for the Capital Region PRISM, which stands for Partnership for Regional Invasive Species. Monitoring species that don't belong is a never-ending job, he says, but worthwhile. This is the greatest threat to endangered species and our ecosystem as we know it today, says Williams. Well, what brought me to you was we have a community garden here in Gilderland, and someone had thought they had seen a crazy worm. I had never heard of a crazy worm. (laughs) It turns out it wasn't a crazy worm because it didn't have this white band going around it. But I tried calling Cornell Cooperative Extension to find out if these worms were new to Albany County. And she said, oh, no, they've been there for years. You should call the prism. And at first I thought she said prison. (laughs) I hadn't known about prism. And I think I'm not untypical of a lot of New Yorkers. We certainly are aware of some species, like there are big signs from the DEC about, say, the lanternfly, but I had never heard of crazy worms. If you could just kind of tell us a little about what some of the species are who are invasive, like I'd love to hear more about this crazy worm, um, that, that most of us aren't aware of. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Um, first, the prisms kind of have a set of deliverables they break down, and you're referencing one of them, but we do early detection and control of invasive species on uh, basically public lands. Um, but there's also like education and outreach component. We coordinate with partners. We train people and citizen scientists and volunteers that want to do stuff. So there's a host or a suite of deliverables that we provide for the state. Uh, the one in particular you're kind of referencing is education and outreach. We do formal educational events. We might do some technical presentations to groups, but we also do informal stuff, everything from tabling events to woods walks. But one of the other things is we do get a lot of calls. We get a lot of questions about invasive species. And I think what happens is people will realize that they observe some type of pest or garden pest in their yard or their favorite park or preserve, and they want to know more about it, and they reach out to us. So a lot of the times we connect people with fact sheets that are from accredited institutions on the, basically the who, the where, the what, and what are the, what are the damages of this species and how to try and control it. Um, so I'm going to go a little bit further on a dive, and I'll try to use the jumping worm as a reference. Um, New York State has regulated and prohibited species that are legislated um, in Part 575. And these species um, have been known to be non-native and invasive. Um, Basically, they harm the ecosystem, uh, economy, and human health, or a combination of those. And they've been ranked and they've been assessed. And so there's kind of a vast list of invasive species, and anybody can look that up. 
Um, we do have those regulated prohibited booklets on our website, the Capital Region Prism website. Um, but there's also a host of other invasives out there that are not regulated yet um, that we're aware of that we also manage. And so what the prisms do is they have something called a tier list. And on that tier list, they have species of concern. So some of the invasives are widespread. They're found everywhere in New York. We call them tier four. Think of common reed or the phragmites you see along the throughway or lakes. And then we have tier three. There might be found in a portion of our counties, but not all of them. There are smaller abundance, but they're still really problematic, but we can slow their spread. But then there's tier two species. Tier two species are species which are found in small populations, usually eight or less in a region, and they're in a population size that we can control cost effectively. Um, and then we have a tier one, which they're species that aren't here yet, but we're aware that they're problematic. And we try to do awareness. That would be like the spotted lanternfly. So our crazy worm um, is widespread in New York. It is also underreported. And I can definitely talk a little bit more about how it's transferred and moved around in the state and, and the problems that it presents, if you'd like. I'd love that. Okay. So the crazy worm um, has been around for a quite some time on the northwestern coast of the United States. It's been present. Um, and I'm not going to butcher the names, but there are three of them. Um, and I'm not going to give you the scientific names. I can look them up. These are the Latin names you're talking about? There are three different kinds that are classified. And Okay. And they were on the Pacific Northwest or the Northwest Coast of the United States? They've been in the Northwest of the United States for some time. And more recently, they've been a problem here in the East Coast. So many of these invasives are spread by human introduction. In this case in particular, um, the, the jumping worms are from, you know, the Pacific North Rim. And basically, they've come from either mulch, soil amendments, or garden plants through plant trade, plant sales, plants that you share with one another. And they've been spread mostly by humans from person to person or from point of sales. Um, and so that's how they're moving around. Now, a couple of things about the worm itself. They live in the upper couple inches of the soil. Uh, the European nightcrawlers burrow different. They're not native to the United States either. There are native earthworms in New York, um, but they have specific ecological niches or structures they live in, and most people aren't familiar with them. But the crazy worm lives in the upper couple inches of the soil, and one of their issues is, one, they're asexual reproducing, so you only need a female. They have eggs that they do deposit, and those eggs are capable of lasting through the winter. They can survive our cold climate, and then they hatch. The females die. They can't handle the cold. Um, and, and so they're asexually producing, and when you have them, they're really difficult to control. There is no recommended management or cure to take care of the problem other than preventing them from coming onto your property in the first place. So a few things when identifying them. Um, they do have the white band that goes all the way around their body near the front. Um, they also can shed their tail and as a defense mechanism. 
uh, like you would see with certain types of amphibians or salamanders, for example. Um, and the thing that makes them really different is they have snake-like movement. They're really, really aggressive. Um, when you try to pick them up, you, you sometimes people are shocked at how fast they move. Um, some other things, um, they cycle the nutrients so fast in the soil, um, and, and they tend to leave castings. Um, and their castings tend to have look like coffee grounds or ground beef, and that's one of the indicators that you might have them. And where did they come from, and why are they not welcome? All right. So uh, I'm going to start with, so the only thing I can tell you, I forget the exact country they're from, um, but they're native to Eastern Asia. Okay. Okay. So they're, they're from the Pacific rim and that warmer climate, they might be found all the place. So how they get here is probably through goods and transportation, uh, packing material, any type of plants that were moved here. Now the thing is they are prolific. Um, you know, those egg castings have been in the soil and slowly over time, they've been spread as a vector by, by humans through plant sales, basically. And they're becoming more and more problematic. Now, why are they bad? First, they cycle the nutrients. They're voracious eaters and they cycle the nutrients in the soil so quickly. And then we have rain that some of the nutrients are being washed away. Um, it's my understanding that they sometimes change the soil composition that is not favorable to our native flowers and shrubs. And we're seeing evidence that they're reducing the topsoil. And then it creates conditions where we have um, poor soil structures and amendments that our native plants can't survive in. Unfortunately, at this time, there is no magic wand you can wave and make these disappear. So people have a host of things that they try to do. One, they're in the top surface of the soil, so you can drive them out. And what people use is like a mustard solution. They go to the grocery store, they buy some powdered mustard, they put it in a one gallon jug of water and they shake it up. And then what you can do as an irritant, uh, you pour that on the ground where you think you have these crazy worms, and it drives them to the surface where you can collect them and dispose of them in um, basically a black garbage bag. You can put them on the driveway and cook them. They call it solaration. Uh, some people squish them. Some people throw them in like a bucket and let them desiccate and dry out. Um, but that is one management technique. The problem is you have to be able to identify it early and get as many of them as possible, and it requires time and energy. Um, they kind of don't spread too fast in a yard or a garden. It's when you recognize those soil castings, mm-hmm. you know, you try to act as fast as you can and try to try to collect them. Um, I know some people have been successful at removing them when they're in small, small infestations. It's when you hear about people that have had, they brought mulch on, on their property or soil that was contaminated with these eggs. And then a year or two go by. And then all of a sudden there's just a, a horde of these jumping worms and it's, really difficult to manage. So is there any kind of system in place when, say, you go to a garden center to buy mulch? Are there certain kinds of mulches that are uh, checked or certified <laughs> as clear? Uh, um, is there some kind of system people can look for to protect themselves and the environment? You know, this is a really great conversation because it is very difficult to regulate commerce and to pinpoint sources. 
Um, so at the moment, it's buyer beware, and that's one of the parts where we do the education and outreach. You know, we really recommend that if people are going to compost, that they do it with their own soil amendments on their own property. We highly recommend bare root stock. Um, you know, you can sell bare root stock, buy bare root stock from seed. So those are some of the recommendations. Now, with certain types of soil and mulch, if you can heat them in a bag and it gets over 140 degrees, it'll cook anything that's in them. Uh, but unfortunately, there's a little bit of, you know, hopefully the vendors are doing the right thing and checking their stock. And then when people receive stuff, they're checking it and making sure that's free of contaminated species. Um, at the moment, there's no regulations or legislation for what we'd call clean fill or clean gravel or clean soils or certified uh, materials. And that's, that's kind of what needs to be done, but that's a process that might take a long time. And, you know, is it, it, it's, it's not a problem until it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And then it, it may be too late because then people notice it and it's already, it's already in our midst. So of this long list of potential, you know, I guess you called them tier one um, invasive species that aren't here yet, but you're looking for, are there other ones we should be aware of as the public um, besides the lanternfly? And if we find one or see one, what do we do? And that leads into what I hope you will really spell out for us, because what fascinated me on your website is this idea of having citizen scientists. And how does one become one? (laughs) What qualifications do they need? And what kind of work do they do? So I guess that's too much to answer all in one spell swoop. But just to start with, what are the species that are most on your mind at PRISM that that you're hoping people will be aware of and, and watch out for? All right. Um, it is a good question. You know, first, I'll, I'll, you know, for listeners out there on the Capital Region PRISM uh, website, um, we have a species of concern page where people can look up the terrestrial, the aquatic species and learn more about them. Um, so what I, the other thing I'd like to start by loading the question is I always recommend for people that are gardeners, they're into restoration of the landscape, is to plant species that are native and resilient and diversify their plantings. And there's a host of reasons for that. You know, when you have a lot of different trees and shrub species, when one of them becomes subject to a pestilence, you know, there's a lot of other plants that will survive. You know, we're familiar with Dutch elm disease, the emerald ash borer, you know, cities planted all the same trees over and over again. And then they were subject to a blight, which had huge economic costs for municipalities. So planting native, diversifying those native plantings and choosing really resistant, hardy climate species is a good way to go. It's when we're purchasing products that are, you know, not native, we're, we're bringing them into our country, uh, we're bringing the bugs, the insects with them, and that's where the problems are coming from. And unfortunately, you know, I'm a gardener, I love showy plants that have lots of flowers, long bloom times, but quite often those are not native plants, um, and they're coming from warmer climates from overseas, and so we're bringing them in and we're introducing the problem. 
Now, other species of concern, I mean, there's some groups that we work with in terms of buckets that I put these species in. We have forest pests. We have agricultural pests. We have aquatic pests. We even have um, normal terrestrial pests. And some of them are more, we have a higher priority for some of them. For example, the spotted lanternfly. It's a, a $400 million agricultural threat to New York State. Um, this How many, what was, the, what was the dollar amount of that for the lanternfly for New York State? I don't know if you can correctly source me, but I've been told it's around a $400 million threat. Wow. So what, what would cause, what, what does the lanternfly do that would cause that kind of loss? So I will answer that and get to the citizen science part. Um, <laughs> it's a good example because it's a really obvious invasive species for people to recognize. It has some unique markings. Now, this creature has a life cycle that it spends on something called the tree of heaven, which is also an invasive plant a colonial tree, um, it spends its, basically its reproductive cycle on the tree. And they're not quite sure, but they think they're extracting chemicals from the tree that help aid in its defenses. Um, but when it leaves the host tree, it will feed on what they classify as stone fruits, meaning cherries, anything with a hard pitted seed. Um, the big ones that they seem to be attracted to are vineyards, and hops. Um, and, and so that's a blooming industry in New York State right along there. Now, they don't necessarily always kill the plants that they're feeding on, but they have, they excrete honeydew. So their waste has a high sugar content. And when it's dumped onto the fruits that we like to eat, it renders them non viable because it attracts something called a sooty mold. And so there's just a host of problems with their feeding, their excrement, and then the damage that they do to crops. Um, and, and they don't, they're not from this country, so they don't have any controls. There's no native pests that will eat them. They don't know how to digest them for some reason, or they don't like the taste of them. They're not recognized. So they haven't evolved here with other controls, insects birds, whatever, would kind of keep them in check like they are in their home country. So they tend to have infestations um, when they are breeding, and we're trying to slow that process down. Where did they, where did they come from? Where did the lantern fly, fly originate? You're getting me today with where no, everything came from. I'm not from. trying to get you. I'm just amazed at how you have all this in your head and you understand the interaction between all these different various things that on the surface, just a normal outsider wouldn't think were related. You know, that the lantern flies excrement causes this sweet deposit on fruit that it attracts this mold that makes it inedible. I don't see how you're holding all these things together in your brain at once. So now you're going to launch into what citizen scientists might do and like who could become one and how? So it's really kind of neat. So there's some people out there that, you know, they're active in their communities, maybe their gardens, um, they go to their favorite parks. And at some point, people find that there are groups out there that they can participate, like in Woods Walks, for example, or there's, there's agencies out there that provide these types of services. And 
you know, one of the things that we do in the PRISM is we partner with a group called IMAP Invasives. And this is from the natural Her- the New York State Natural Heritage Program, but they have a desktop program and an app you can download on your phone. And it allows you to report species, these invasive species. So sometimes in the prison, we do trainings where we offer up classes on, you know, what are some basic invasives and their problem and how to report them. And we show people um, how to use this mobile app, which is a free service, and how to report and identify invasives. Um, So it's something I highly recommend people do and check out if they're into this. Um, I think it's a nice little tool to help report, and it's kind of like a gateway that brings greater awareness to the public once they start using these apps and these services. So sometimes there's a lot of the prisons will offer trainings and they do outreach for people, even if they're webinars or in person, um, on what they can do and how to identify these normal invasives. And sometimes there are groups of people that might belong to a friend's group of a certain park and we get invited in and we train them on the invasives. And that leads to further action, like how can they do volunteer work and remove stuff in their in their favorite parks or preserves. I'm often pushing groups to adopt their favorite park and preserve, and then these are things they need to look out for, and this is what you can do to help keep your environment a little bit more pristine or retain the original natural communities that are present. On the other hand, there's also things that you can do in your own yard. Like what? What can you do in your own yard? So, you know, people that are active gardeners, um, I encourage them, one, if they're aware of invasive species, remove them. Some of them have seeds and the birds will eat them and spread them further into the environment. Um, And it's hard because some of the invasives people love dearly. They don't recognize that their impact is great or damaging the environment. Um, But when they make that connection, then it, it stimulates action. And then the other thing is the movement, you know, moving away from these ornamental plants um, that might be high threat and looking into more native gardening is is a way to go. So that's something they can do. Not that there's anything wrong with purchasing plants at a nursery. Um, There's a lot of great species that, you know, do not, they're not invasive. They don't have invasive properties, but to be at least aware of what you're bringing in on your property, if it could be problematic in the future to simply not plant that and go to select an alternative. So, does your website does your website have on it if somebody's listening and wondering if something that they love dearly, as you said, in their own garden, they're wondering, oh my gosh, is this one of those that's bad? Is there some way of knowing? You know, which we don't they specifically target um, plants, but on the website, you know, I'll reference the tier list again. But on our homepage, I do believe at the bottom. There, there is a green and a blue book. It's the New York State Prohibited and Regulated Plants. Mm-hmm. They could click on that blue book right on the front page of the website, and it kind of goes through some of the regulated and prohibited species. Again, there's other invasives out there. Um, however, it, it's a process to you know, assess a plant and then rank it as invasive and then to legislate it. There, some of these are economically viable, so they try to phase them out. Mm-hmm. Most often, I will tell people, when you're purchasing a plant, do a Google search. You know, if you're looking at something called wisteria, 
and you want to know if it's invasive, do a Google and write, is wisteria native or invasive using some of those keyword searches? And a lot of times you'll find out like things will pop up like this plant is problematic in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And that's a good indicator that you may not want to plant that. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of non-native plants. And it's really hard to provide an updated comprehensive list. Mm-hmm. But there's enough on our website to get people started and to really start consider, okay, these are things that I need to do or start considering. And similarly, if someone's listening and thinking, wow, I'd really like to get that app that he's talking about and learn how to identify and report native species, is there a place they can sign up for that training or how, how, how would they get into the pipeline to do that? Yeah. And again, I'll recommend from our website, um, there's, there's a couple of nice examples. We do have on our website uh, a page where they can look up information on IMAP invasives. Um, the other thing is right at the top of our front webpage, there's actually a citizen scientist program that is now set up with the Natural Heritage Program and IMAP invasive. And this one in particular um, has the goal of getting people to sign up and adopt what are called spotted lanternfly grids and all the information is there. When it's just a click away, um, they'll go to a web page that will train them on the phenology, the identification and life cycle of mm-hmm. spotted lanternfly. And then there's another component where they can sign up for a grid and they can actually go to that grid if it's in their area and survey it for their egg casings or their instars or their adult form. And all the properties that are selected are on a uh, public property where they can, can go and search So a little bit to it. They need to be able to identify what a tree of heaven is, but even right off the top of the front page, there's an IMAP invasive, how to sign up for a citizen scientist program. And they do have announcements, not only on our webpage, but on their webpage, we have a listserv that people can sign up for. I encourage people to sign up for our listserv. Um, but they can find out when there's training. And there's been at least three uh, spotted lanternfly trainings each quarter this year. I think there's a fourth one coming up. Um, but they can check that out and learn more. And, of course, the spotted lanternfly, I know we're picking on it a little bit, um, it's a high-threat species. And so the Department of Ag and Markets, they want you to report and they want to know. Um, They will actually send out an inspector or sometimes it's us in the prism. But we are looking for active uh, infestations. It's one thing if we get a dead bug that came through some, you know, packaging equipment from a box retail store. It's another thing if we find a tree and there's breeding population with eggs. They are actively coming to locations to control those species immediately. So we, this is one that's really high threat, and we want people to report immediately. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of other species I didn't get to. Like if you're talking aquatics, there's hydrilla. If you're talking another forest pest, we're always concerned about hemlock woolly adelgid. Um, but there's a lot of species out there that we're trying to either keep from coming here, preventing, or to slow their spread, or if they're in small populations, to eradicate them. Well, before we run out of time, I also wanted to hear a little about you. I see, and I can understand in just this short conversation, that you used to be a high school teacher, and you have those qualities, earth science and chemistry. But just tell us a little about, I mean, what were you like as a kid? Did you like 
pay attention to the environment? How, how did you get this obvious passion for what you're doing? Just tell us a little, where did you grow up and like, what, what was your family like? Were you like out in the woods all the time or where did this come from? Uh, interesting question. So I grew up in Western New York. I'm a Buffalonian. Go Bill. Um, I had to, I had to put that in there. Um, I, I, you know, I shared time living in the country and in the city and I was always actively outside. My parents encouraged us to play outside. So I was on a bike playing in the Creek out in the woods. Um, so just that general innate, you know, natural setting and just being aware of, of things in my life. Um, as I was older, um, my father worked for a, an industrial company. And unfortunately, um, you know, uh, one of the top 10 polluted sites in the United States back in the 70s, and he contracted cancer. So my environmental awareness became greater after his death. Oh, my um, I went into natural resources for college, and I actually started off as an environmental hydrologist. Um, and then I had a career shift as a teacher to make a difference in young minds and their life um, and how to be more in tune with the environment to make good choices mm -hmm. and to understand how science works and also how humans have such a large impact on our environment. And that there are a lot of things that we can do to make our world a better place. And so in my third career here, I decided to re return back to the natural environment. Um, and I really enjoy working with invasive species. Um, it is a, definitely a never-ending job. Um, but there's a lot of good positives that can be done and things that we can do to help maintain our ecosystem. So it's kind of where modern conservation practices are at. Um, when you're talking about threats to our environment, this is the greatest threat to uh, endangered species and our ecosystems as we know it today. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and there's a lot of things that uh, the rest of us out in society can do to play our part to help protect our environment. So that's the short and skinny of it. Well, it's a, certainly a very moving um, rendition of a lifetime. and. Congratulations on your work. I just wonder if you have any closing thoughts for our listeners as our time is ticked away. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll stress the fact that, you know, if people become a little bit more conscious about their products, their goods and services and their actions that they're doing, it does help. I really encourage people to go with native species if they're actively planting. And on the other side, if they want to get involved, start to take a look at some of the PRISM websites, um, get involved with some other groups, get on their listservs, check out IMAPs Invasives. And I, I find once people kind of get into these little networks, they start to see other opportunities and other websites, and it, it takes them down a whole new road. Um, there, there are a lot of organizations out there that do native gardening workshops and there's a lot of places that have native plant cells and they can always reach out to us and we can steer people in, in the right direction. Um, again, we have an aquatics coordinator. Um, we do actual trainings on the water. We have a terrestrial coordinator. We do trainings out in the environment, um, but we're also actively managing um, high threat species and small populations on public lands. And there's, there's, there's times that we request for volunteers to help us out. 
Um, so I, I encourage people to check out our website. Um, another big thing, usually in June or July, there is Invasive Species Awareness Week by the state. Um, and all of the prisms drum up a lot of support from their partners. And there's just this statewide activity of all sorts of events from removals to tabling events uh, where we bring a lot of attention to invasive species. So I encourage people to get active with their local parks, join a friends group and kind of look at how they can contribute and help out some of our parks. <laughs>